We are in Esther for the first time tonight. This podcast is called Masterclass Theology. I am Big Rev, and yeah, I'm so glad to be on this journey with you. Esther is by far the most unique book of the Bible. There is no other book of the Bible that even comes close to Esther. What in the world makes Esther unique? Well, let me tell you. Um, God is not mentioned in Esther even once. We would expect God's holy name, you know, the one back in the burning bush, the I am name in Hebrew, it's Yahweh. We would expect that. We see it all the time in the Old Testament. We would expect maybe Elohim. You've heard of that before? Uh-uh. God's not there. He's not there explicitly in the text. We don't have any prophets in Esther or priests. We have no religious structure in Esther. What makes the book of Esther unique in all the Bible? We've got no miracles, no direct communication from God. I mean, I guess I have to say I hate to say it. Esther, if you'll permit me, is of all the books of the Bible, is a secular book? I mean, I feel awkward saying that, but it is. Esther is secular. There's no mention of Jerusalem or the temple or any of that stuff. Nobody prays. Nobody preaches. Nothing. Where's God? Where's God in Esther? Esther's the most unique book in the whole Bible. It's one of those books of the Bible where you're, you might be talking to one of your coworkers or friends and like, oh, you're, you read the Bible. This is all about God and Jesus and all this kind of weird spiritual mumbo jumbo. No, we're, we're studying Esther, friend, and God's not even in there once. The best we can do with God is to kind of picture him moving the chess pieces behind the scenes. He's just not there. I mean, Martin Luther hated the book of Esther. Check up on him. Google him later when it comes to Esther. Google Martin Luther and Esther. He said, I hate the book of Maccabees. I'm at war with the book of 2 Maccabees and the book of Esther. None of the great commentary writers of, of the, 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 uh, uh, the, the, the Protestant Reformation, Calvin or Luther, none of them wrote anything on Esther. They're like, forget about it. What's there to write? Does the book of Esther have historical significance? Yeah. There are two festivals the modern Jew celebrates that is not mentioned in the Torah. One is in Esther, and it's called Purim. By the way, show of hands, are any of you bakers? Like, for real, you, you can bake and cookies. And, okay. All right. I ate something a number of years ago. For some reason, Jewelosco had it. It was called a hamantashen. A hamantashen, it means um, we're going to meet a character in Esther, the bad guy, the one that we always boo is going to be Haman or Haman. And... The Jews eat a cookie called hamantashen. It basically loosely translates Haman's ears. And so to stick it to him, they eat his ears. And they're delicious. They're like filled with like, you know, fruit preserves, that kind of stuff. If it, it, but Jewish bakeries, we're going to miss Purim by like about a few weeks by the time our study of Esther is done. Or by the time our eight weeks are done, we're not going to get into March and Purim's in March. Purim is coming from the book of Esther. The other major holiday feast of the Jews do that is not in the Torah is Hanukkah. Hanukkah, Jesus celebrated Hanukkah. It is in the book of John. 
I forget the chapter, I should have looked it up, but it says Jesus came to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Dedication. Your footnote at the bottom of the text will say, also known as Hanukkah. Not commanded in the, in the law of Moses, neither is Purim. So that's the basic historical, historical significance of Esther. It talks about a great reversal. The character Mordecai is going to tick off this Haman guy, and all of a sudden, all hell is going to break loose. Almost literally. And the Jews are going to be almost destroyed, but they're going to have a reversal. The great reversal. How can a non-religious book teach us about God? It's a great question. Because this is a non-religious book. I mean, I'm sorry, but I'm not sorry. I can't apologize for God's word. It's just not religious. You're not going to read this book and go, wow, this taught me a lot about God. At least on the outside. But hello, do you live in a world that's all about God? Or is God more of a political afterthought? No, our world is all separation of church and state. Our world is all about government. Our world is all about culture. God, ah, whatever. We live in a land where power is centered in government. We live in a time where there is no direct communication from God. There's no miracles. There's no means by which God communicates, except his word. But the way he used to communicate, talking through prophets and stuff, no, that's gone. We live in a time like Esther. Esther lived in a pagan polytheistic world, completely, the Persian Empire. I want to open with my Esther story. I didn't want to do it, but I did it on Monday, so I'm going to do it again. My wife and I, oh gosh, it was in 2010. We were pregnant. We were happy. It was, it was just we were happy to, to, to extend our family, and we, we, it was something that we just could not believe that God was going to do. And we went on a trip, and my wife was pregnant on a cruise, and she got to eat things. And it was a fun time. And then we came home for that first ultrasound. And that first ultrasound was, uh, I'll never forget it. They put us in the room. We're all like, okay, you can, we, we get to find out you know, what we're going to find out today. And all of a sudden, they stopped talking to us. And the technicians were not looking us in the eyes. And they're like, well, hold on here, guys. We're going to put you in a different room. So they put us in a different room. They unhooked the machines from us. Well, the whole purpose is the machines, right? No, they unhooked the machines, and they had the doctor come in. And the doctor said, well, there's no heartbeat. Oh like all the air being let out of the metaphorical balloons. That pregnancy was really hard. And so, well, let's make an appointment to come in. And a couple of you know this story. Let's make an appointment to come in. You know, let's have the weekend. We can't do anything now. But, you know, I'm just, I just have to be honest with you, Mr. and Mrs. Bradshaw. Um, there's no heartbeat, so you probably have, you don't have something in life. We have to get things cleaned. You know what I'm saying? We have to do a procedure. And so Jennifer, my wife, is at, we're at home all weekend, and we're, we're heartbroken. We just don't know what to do, and she's, she's, she's freaking out. And she's like, honey, we have no means to listen, but I feel there's something going on. There's no heartbeat, but this baby's not, I just know that she's not dead. He's not dead. We don't know. My goodness, I, I just, we can't go through with whatever we got to go through. And we were freaking out because Jen was swearing high and low. It's like, oh, come on, I'm feeling something moving. The baby would have been too small anyway. I, I swear it, I swear it. So we go into the, the appointment because at that point, you've got to make sure that everything is going to be okay and you've got to make sure whatever has to be done has to be done. We go into the appointment and I look at the doctor and said, Doc, I don't know what your, 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 your policy is right now, but humor me. 
check for one that heartbeat one final time. Just do it for me. I'll shut up just one more time. All right, Mr. Bradshaw. All right. So I get at the end of the bed, and I turn into a Catholic at that moment. I'm tossing up every prayer I know. I'm on my knees. I'm like, okay, God, this is your moment. If there ever is going to be a miracle in my life, right now has to be it. I'm about to cry now. I'm like, God, this has got to be it. And he's, he's, he's trying everything. He's like looking at me like, and trying, trying, trying. It was like five minutes of trying to find something. He's about ready to give up all hope. When all of a sudden he stopped. And I'll never forget the look on the doc's face. His eyes got as big as saucers. And he goes, did you hear that? I was like, yeah. I'll say one thing about that baby. It was a horrible high-risk pregnancy. Every single... We proceeded to change doctors. I'm just going to leave it at that. Miracle notwithstanding, I guess. But we were, every, we were at a different doctor. Every, the OB, every OB-GYN appointment, they go to the measure things. And, and there was not much to measure, except there's more things wrong with this baby. But I got to tell you, that little baby, the doctor would say, well, there's 14 things we could talk about. But what a strong heartbeat. My little baby, she, li- she lived for 15 minutes. We... We got into the, the, the room and we had a crash cart ready to go. In fact, along the way, uh, the, one of the high-risk pregnancy specialists says, you know, even if your baby makes it, she's not going to make it. You might want to consider. And I, I remember saying, Doc, I, you don't know this, but I'm a pastor and I believe in heaven. And one day I want to be able to look that little baby in the eye and say, we gave you every chance we could. Well, okay, whatever, sir. I can't, can't make a decision for you. So we had that crash cart ready to go. Baby came out. There was no, oh, let's tie off the umbilical cord. No, it was a, it was a scalpel. Shing, and all of a sudden, right to the table, one, two, they're working on. And eventually they looked over the room with me. You know, Jen's getting sewn up. She's out of it. You know, she's just like, you know. And, and I'm over there and I'm looking. The much I can do. I'm like that goose, that, that male goose looking like that. This is, what can I see? And the doc said, Mr. Bradshaw, we're, we're doing damage over here. I'm like, all right. Just stop. They're wrapping the baby up. I said, Doc, I got two questions. And the first one doesn't have a kind word in it, so you've got to pardon me. Question one, Doc, did you fight like hell? Yes, sir, we did. Question two, what's the gender? We wanted to be surprised. It's our first one. He said, girl. Jen and I looked at each other and we said, Esther. Immediately. Because Esther's a fighter. You're going to be shocked as we look at Esther. You're going to be expecting this great paragon of virtue and morality. She's not. She's going to do things next week that are going to cause you to clutch your pearls. Not this week. We don't meet her this week. But she fought for her people. My little baby Esther fought for nine months. The name was a no-brainer. Esther. The secular book 
that the big theologians don't like, what in the world can we learn? It means something to me. I pray it means something to you. Our setting, verse 1 to 3. We're in chapter 1 of Esther. We're called emotions tonight, not because I'm an emotional wreck right now. Oh, this is the way I teach. I get into it, and I, I'm going to make myself cry half the time. It's just, it's just, you should hear me read the book of Ruth. Oh, my goodness. In fact, there's a podcast on you. You can find it. I can't make it through the reading without crying. All right, Esther, if I can open up the right. Okay, Esther chapter 1. This is what happened during the time of Xerxes. Now, in Hebrew, it's Ahoersus. And um, in Persian, that is, I'm going to butcher this, Kshayrshah. 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 So we're indebted to Herodotus, the Greek historian, who said, Kshayrshah. Kshayrshah. How about Xerxes? So he wrote it down as Xerxes. So it, it is in Greek, Xerxes who ruled over 127 provinces stretching out from India to Kush. At that time, King Xerxes reigned from the royal throne of the city of Susa, Shushan in the Hebrew, Susa. And in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for his, all of his nobles and officials, the military, bleh, the military leaders of Persia and Media, the princes and the nobles of the provinces were present. Xerxes. For those of you who are movie watchers, you know this guy. Remember the movie 300? All right, he's, he's the one. Now, he, uh, they win that war, the, the 300, the Thermopylae, the, this is Sparta, those guys. They don't, win the, they don't win that battle, but they end up winning the war. Xerxes does not win the war. He is, um, he's not much to write home about in terms of history. Um, but yeah, this is Xerxes. And we'll be finding out more about him. If you ever need, if you have a spare time, you want to look into this guy, Check out your Google search as Herodotus. That's Herod plus Atus. Herodotus, Xerxes. He wrote a ton about him. And this guy is, uh, you pick your favorite politician, he's worse. This guy is led around by his emotions and his uh, feelings and his uh, sensualities and fun stuff. But that's, but that's what drew him. So the Medo-Persian Empire. So we have Cyrus of Persia and Darius the Mede. They conquered Babylon after the famous... Remember the book of Daniel? There's that handwriting on the wall incident. So you're going to be weighed and found wanting? Well, yeah, that was Babylon. If you're going to remember one date in biblical history, remember this date, 586 B.C. 586 B.C., that is when Babylon came in and smack. They destroyed Jerusalem. They carted off the exiles. Daniel... Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the priest Ezekiel. These were books of the Bible. During that time, the temple is destroyed. By the way, the temple is the house of whom? God. No temple, no house. Where is God? Where's he at? I mean, to the average person looking in, theology doesn't matter anymore. If you're looking at life and going, wow, God's temple is destroyed. I guess the other gods are more powerful. Okay. I guess our God really isn't the God because we lost and now we're all slaves and exiles. And uh, so yeah, that was Cyrus of Persia. Cyrus, trivia, is the only Gentile in the entire Bible that God calls Messiah. Isaiah 45, the Lord God calls Cyrus Mashiach, Messiah. He's not a Jew, I know. Cyrus is going to allow... Ezra and Nehemiah to go back. 
Ezra is going to rebuild the temple, and Nehemiah is going to rebuild the city walls. But eventually Cyrus is going to die, and his, his uh, lieutenant Darius the Mede is going to take over, and Darius's boy, and Darius is going to attack Greece. He's going to be hell-bent to go after Greece. And Greece is going to eventually hand him his lunch. So much so that Xerxes, Darius's boy, is going to say, that's it, i got to do daddy's battle. i got to go after Greece. And Greece is going to eventually hand Xerxes his lunch. Well, what's going on with Esther? Remember I said Esther was a secular book? The people in Esther are Jews that we're going to meet, Esther and Mordecai. But see, by this time in history, you see, Ezra and Nehemiah had led a delegation to go back to Jerusalem and welcome back to the promised land. It was a great, huge theological moment. But there were some Jews, by this time, there were Jews everywhere in the, in the Persian Empire. There were some Jews, like the Jews in the city of Susa, that said, you know, we're good. We're actually good. Go back to Jerusalem. You know, you, you guys got that. Go ahead. We're good. Esther tells the story of the men and women who stayed behind, who had the chance to go back to the promised land and said, yeah, we're good. They stayed behind. It's as if, theologically speaking, they're pulling a mo Curly and Larry and poking God. And he's like, yeah, we're good. No, no, you go, go do your thing. The beauty of this story, though, is that through this story, the religious folk that went back, they're going to be saved by these non-religious folk who stayed. Spoiler alert. Wow. Whew. The events of the Esther story span a period of about 10 years during the reign of Xerxes, the Persians were getting ready to do their next great battle with the Greeks. This is the backdrop as we begin. That's the biblical context. Let's go to verses 4 to 9. For a full 180 days he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty. When the days were over, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days in the enclosed garden of the king's palace. Now, ladies, you, some of you may be more decorative gentlemen. You might know your stuff. I don't know what any of this is going to look like. But it's described here, and there must be some ooh and ah factor here. Okay. The enclosed garden of the king's palace for all the people from the least to the greatest who were in the citadel of Susa. The garden had hangings of white and blue linen. Ooh. Fastened with cords of uh, white linen and purple material to silver rings on marble pillars. I guess if you had a marble pillar, you'd say, well, let's put a silver ring on that bad boy. That's what it is. There were couches of gold. I guess those aren't good sleeping couches, but that's okay. Couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, other costly stones. Okay. Wine was served in goblets of gold, each one different from the other. It's as if to say, I don't want two of my wine goblets looking the same. Would a different craftsman do a different job each time? I don't care what it costs. How dare you make everything with the same mold? It's like, I just have money to, to, to blow my nose with, so let's do it. And I'll start with the hundreds and go down. That's this guy. I mean, my goodness. The royal wine was abundant in keeping with the king's liberality. By the king's command, each guest was allowed to drink with no restrictions. I've heard of an open bar before. My goodness. 
For the king instructed all the wine stewards to serve each man what he wished. I was once at, a, I think it was at a Red Robin burger place, and I, the, the, waitress could, the waitress could tell I was thirsty. I came in, it was back when I was drinking Dr. Pepper, and I just was swigging down that Dr. Pepper. She not only brought me a refill, she brought me a second full glass. I said, is this a pre-fill? What is this thing here? And she kept refilling both glasses. All right? Now that's what we got going on here. I mean, this is, you could just keep drinking whatever you wish. He doesn't care. Queen Vashti also gave a banquet for the women of the royal palace of King Xerxes. I don't know if her banquet is as good as his banquet, but who cares? Um, yeah, Xerxes is a guy who wants to do, I guess, he wants to throw a party. And you ain't gone to a party till you've gone to a Xerxes party. My goodness. I was in a frat in college. I've seen guys pound, pound down alcohol, but I've never seen it like this. Woo! Banquets. This is like a person pep rally. Who remembers a pep rally back in high school? The big homecoming game is coming up, so they bring you all to the gym, and you sit in the stands where they got the, the pretty cheerleaders over there with their pom-poms and the handsome guys in their, in their football uniform or just the jersey, and, and they're all like, okay, was the star quarterback got to say something? Yeah, we're going to beat our, our rival. Yeah, and everyone's going crazy. And they do all the cheers, and I guess they want to rally your pep. A pep rally. That's what we got here with Xerxes. Instead of a pep rally, he's basically telling everybody, yeah, we're going to go to war, and I'm so rich and awesome, you're going to follow me to hell and gone, and we're going to win. And, you, and, and until you, if you don't believe me, have some more to drink. And uh, maybe there's some nice things to look at. And for 180 days, look at all the stuff I got. I mean, this is like that MTV Cribs show a number of years ago, but for three months. Wow. Dang. And then seven days of feasting. Now, I've wrecked the China Buffet in my time. Seven days? Wow. Dude's not messing around. It's clearly a power display. He's clearly saying, I'm the man. I'm the king of kings. And what are you going to do? You're going to give me your taxes when I call for them? You're going to follow me into battle when I call for it? Because who was like me? Nobody. And nobody was. Nobody was going to shut him up. He was the dude. He was it. He was the man. He's Xerxes. The greatest man in the greatest empire the world had ever seen. Persia. They literally walked into Babylon after the handwriting on the wall incident, and as the historians record it, took the city without a fight. That Xerxes. Man is a mess around. Two responses and one noticeable lack of response in the refusal. Here we go. 10 to 12. On the seventh day when King Xerxes was high in spirits from wine. Don't you like how the Bible put that? Uh, he's like falling out of his outfit drunk. He's high in spirits from wine. Yeah, I bet. Yeah, he is. He commanded the seven eunuchs who served him. And you've got to understand, this guy has to have the most beautiful women everywhere. So the guys like that like to hire guys who are eunuchs who aren't going to be handsy with the women. In fact, they're probably not going to care to even look at the women. They're eunuchs. They hire eunuchs to be the go-betweens, to handle their harems. Because you, you can trust them. Because what are they going to do? At least the way the king puts it. 
Seven eunuchs who served him. And you know what? They get memorialized in biblical history so I can trip over their names. Mahuman, Bista, Harbona, Bigtha, Ag, Abakta, Zethar, Karkas. Yeah, go, 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 Karkas, represent. To bring before queen, him Queen Vashti wearing her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and nobles. For she was lovely to look at. Now the Bible cleaned that up nicely. Dude just spent 180 days showing off everything to everybody. He's got one more thing to show off, doesn't he? And ladies, I said thing on purpose. Husband, you call your wife a thing or an object, good luck. He's treating her like an object, isn't he? He's got one more thing to show off. His pretty, gorgeous wife, who has nothing better to do than to look hot. I don't know. This is her. This is it. Now, before you, you say, well, oh my gosh, he's taking some poetic license here. Hello, this is a secular book. All bets are off. This is Persia. These people are messed up and they're, they're, they're all about their issues and their things. In fact, you're, you're, we've already said this, but you're, you're going to get through this book and you're going to go, oh, there's no way Esther meant that. Why not? Like Esther, some great God person that we know. Like Mordecai. Yeah, Mordecai is going to ask Esther to do something that makes no sense, biblically. And he's some person of faith. I mean, there's tension there with the way, these are people who aren't going back to live with God in Jerusalem. They're living out there in the land of pleasure, Persia. Impaired judgment? Uh, yeah, I would say so. 10 to 12, these, uh, bring, bring her in. She was lovely to look at, but the attendants delivered the king's command. Queen Vashti refused to come. Uh-oh. Then the king became furious and burned with anger. This tonight's class is called emotions. We've got some emotions going on here. We've got my own emotions telling my Esther story. We've got the emotions of the king. I said, I said get over here. You're going to tell me no? I bet he's burned with anger. Nobody tells this man no. Ever. You think these guys who grow up and no one ever tells them no and they got multi-million dollar sneaker contracts before they get out of high school and you wonder what the, why they do the things that they do. Well, of course they do the things that they do. They've been all about themselves forever, these athletes. And we wonder, wow, that went downhill very fast. They got nobody tell, speaking life to them and telling them no. This guy? Please. We got two responses and one noticeable lack of a response. The first response, Vashti, she's like, heck no. I'm not going to be one more thing for this boy to display. He's had 180 days and seven more days of God knows what with who knows what, and he wants me to be the icing on that cake? I can't do it anymore. She said no. That's one response. The other response is, is, is Xerxes. Like, oh, man, I'm mad. And we're going to see what's going to happen here. The third response is something you, the biblical reader, would expect. You're like, so why isn't the narrator speaking up here? Doesn't the Bible do that? Isn't the Bible going to tell me what to think right now? Because I don't know what to think about this situation. Isn't it going to say, well, yeah, well, then they got theirs or something like that. Or, boy, yeah, we don't approve of this. The narrator is silent. We get no judgment to the book of, Ex book of Esther. None. We get none. We get no commentary. 
We don't get the narrative. We don't even know who wrote this book. We have no idea. They kept that silent too. We would expect the narrator to go, yeah, but. We get no yeah, buts. That's why the book of Esther is so freaking real. I mean, this book is like, if the Bible had a wart, it is warts and all. But you're going to fall in love with this book because it has no religious stuff to get lost in. This is people at their realest. And there's no commentary or God to lecture or even give us lessons. Nothing. This is, I mean, I love, I love that book for this reason. This is a book of the Bible you could talk to your friends with. I don't do God. Okay, then you'll do Esther. Wow. I mean, you're meeting characters. One of these characters is going to grab you, especially as we keep going. But let's continue here. Council, 13 to 20, the biggest part here. Since it was customary for the king to consult experts in the matters of law and justice, especially when they're all drunk, he spoke with the wise men who understood the times and were closest to the king. These would be your Washington lobbyists. These are the guys who have the inside track to power. Okay, they had the king's ear at all times. And it's more names for me to read. Karshana, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Merez, Mersana, and Memukan, the seven nobles of Persia and Media who had special access to the king and were highest in the kingdom. According to law, what must be done to Queen Vashti, he asked. She has not obeyed the command of King Xerxes that the eunuchs have taken to her. Make up your own voice when you read it in your own, in your own time. Then Mimukan replied in the presence of the king and the nobles, Queen Vashti has done wrong. And you can hear the smallest little violin being played in the background here. Not only against the king, but also against all the nobles and the peoples of the provinces of King Xerxes. For the queen's conduct will become known to all the women, and so they will despise their husbands and say, King Xerxes commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before the Persian, or before him, but she would not come. This very day, the Persian and Median women of the nobility who have heard about the queen's conduct will respond to all the king's nobles in the same way. There will be no end of disrespect and discord. Therefore, therefore, if it pleases the king, let him issue a royal decree and let it be written in the laws of Persia and Media, which cannot be repealed, that Vashti is never again to enter the presence of King Xerxes. Also, let the king give her royal position to someone else who is better than she. Oh, that's a little female dig right there. Oh, she's better than she, huh? Yeah, more woman than this woman? I don't know. Then the king's edict is proclaimed throughout all his vast realm. All the women will respect their husbands. Ladies, are you going to respect your husband because some faraway king and his council ordered you to? No. You're either respecting him or you're not respecting him. Wait a minute. Washington passed a law that everybody has said, oh, great. I really love having the inner workings of my household legislated by random people. That's what's going on here. This is big, big, big government. Wow. From the least to the greatest. Well, politics has taken over, and Herodotus, that historian, presented, uh, uh, presented Xerxes as he had bad advisors. Yeah. 
he did have bad advisors. Bad advisors indeed. Guys who are very much thinking about their own marriages, aren't they? Wow, king, if you can't even get your wife to uh, obey you, how are we supposed to get our wives to obey us? And all the rest of the country, and the, 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 everyone's going to go, oh, Queen Vashti did it? Mm-hmm, I ain't going to do nothing with you, honey. I'm not going to spend any time with you. I'm not going to clean your dishes. I'm not going to do anything with you, dear, because Queen Vashti ran away. She said no, so <laughs> if the king is not going to get his wife to, to fall over and obey, then you're not going to get yours either. I don't know. I got no answer here. That's one of the beauties of Esther, this book. We're playing with house money here. Because we got nothing. This is a foreign culture doing its thing. And the Bible's not saying anything about it. We're getting no commentary. So who am I or who are you to offer any commentary where the Bible is silent? We have to take it in and go, wow, what a messed up world this Esther lived in. Wow, what a culture to live in. I can't imagine any of these wives are ever happy if they have to obey or if they sound like they're in the Alice in Wonderland off with your head or something. I mean, I don't know. Do what we say or else. Uh, yeah, I could have a gun put to my head and someone commands me to say I love you. Well, I'll say I love you, but is that love? Heck no. It's, it's some kind of compelling. Um, that's kind of where they're going here. I mean, it's, it's, it's foreshadowing. How is it foreshadowing? Well, X is going to be outmaneuvered by V. Xerxes is outmaneuvered by Vashti. We are expecting him to be again outmaneuvered by a woman. To be outmaneuvered by a woman. And Esther is not going to so much outmaneuver Xerxes. She's going to outmaneuver her rival, who is not Xerxes. It is this evil guy named Haman. Ooh, yes, right. Every time the Jews read, read the story of Esther every year. And by the way, I read a story that in the concentration camps, they outlawed the reading of Esther. Because it talks about a reversal of the Gentiles being reversed when the Jews come out on top. The cool part about that story is there was enough people who knew their Esther in the, in the concentration camps. They reproduced it from memory. And they're like, take that away. Yeah, this is good stuff. This, this book has changed history. And it talks about history being changed. And God's not there. What's the irony? Oh, goodness. What a commanding general this general is. He can't even command his wife. Now, from our uh, post-feminist ears here, we're going, oh, what do you mean command his wife? How dare you? <laughs> I'm not Persian! In Persian culture, they wanted to follow their manly king into battle. And a manly king's not taking any guff from his women. He has to legislate his wife to obey him? Oh yeah, I'm going to follow you into battle, O king. Yeah, and please uh, legislate something that we can't do ourselves. Oh my gosh, the Queen Vashti left and all of our wives are going to tell us no. And what are we going to do? And we better pass a law or otherwise no woman ever is going to want to be associated with us anymore. Oh please, the irony is dripping. Do what I can't do, yeah. Imagine, as we get ready to close here, with these characters. Imagine a time period. Here's why Esther's the great. Here's why Esther's one of the greatest books of the Bible. Imagine if God never talked. 
mic drop moment. Imagine if God never talked, not once. Imagine if he had no prophet, no priest. If God never once said anything to anybody, but instead, all he did was act instead of talking. Wow. Now you got that picture in your head? We get no Ten Commandments. We don't get any of the law. God's never spoken to any prophet, nothing. All we get is things he's doing. That's the book of Esther. That's the book of Esther, where God is clearly moving behind the scenes. The theological thing I want to teach you before we close, it's in your, your blanks at the top of the page here. I want you to learn a, a thing about, called divine providence. No providence, I know it's a city in Rhode Island, but it, it's a theological construct. It means this, God directs the things of the universe to his appointed end for them. God directs the things in the universe to his appointed end. And second of all here, God is therefore providentially at work in the ordinary events of life. God directs the things of the universe to their appointed end, and therefore God is providentially at work in the ordinary events of life. That is the main theological lesson of the book of Esther. You can't see God. You don't know he's there, but you see things happening that only God could pull off, that only God could do. With my little Esther, yes, it was. I had to be the... the my wife and I were had to, had to, we, we had to bury her. She was a live birth. So she had, on her, on her, on her little gravestone, it was just one day. Not a year. No, a year. It was one date. And I, the, I got to hold the littlest, littlest casket of all time. I was the pallbearer, daddy. And we're thinking, well, God, what are you doing here? But let me tell you something about that. When I was a pastor at the time, and my little church was having problems, there were some schisms starting to start there, some issues and, and going on back and forth. And all of a sudden, that little church rallied around Jen and me. And they said, oh, heck no. We're coming together. We came together. God used that whole thing. I, we, we were looking back with eyes of faith, and we're like, man, God, what were you doing? How, how did you lead us through that time? We're not that strong. We don't have to be. He is. See, God is providential. The ordinary things of life he uses. Think about it for yourself real quick. How in the world did you ever come to Christ? How in the world did you ever come to a church like the bridge? How did you end up in this Bible study tonight? I guarantee you, God used an ordinary event in your life to get you here. A thought, a conversation, an email, a text, a Facebook, whatever it was. God uses ordinary events all the time to call people like you and me to himself. He did it with Esther, and he does it now, how many centuries later? This is good stuff. And it's even better precisely because God's not there. At least not the way we're expecting him to be there. Maybe you, Xerxes pulls at you. Oh, he's, he had his love for women he loved his drink. He loved his power. Maybe there's something about you that directs you that you need to knock off. Maybe Xerxes just, you know what, I, I just don't know what to do. And No matter what I say or do, I just, uh, nobody's, nobody ever listens to me. I don't know. The king and his nobles were pleased with this advice that they did with the Memucon proposed. He sent dispatches to all parts of the kingdom, to each province in its own script, and each people in their own language, proclaiming that every man should be ruler of his own household. 
using his native tongue. I don't know. Xerxes has just kind of a lack of, I don't know, he just was so emotionally insecure. Maybe that's you. How about Vashti? She's a real dilemma. She seems like the only adult in the room, doesn't she? She's the only one who had the bravery to say no and now get out of here. In, in kingdoms like what Xerxes had, I bet people were wanting to say no. But who dared to say no? Maybe you have that at your work. Maybe there's people who are gossiping and you know what's wrong. Maybe there's dirty jokes. Maybe, maybe there's things you're acting in your relationships. There's things going on and you're like, you know, someone ought to say something. Boy, I, I would want to say something, but I don't want to lose what I've got or a friendship. I know that hamstrung me when I was a kid. I knew what to do, but I didn't want to lose a friendship. I still regret those days. I'm thankful for Facebook where I can connect with these friends again and say, yeah, I was a hypocrite. Yeah, I wish I could have told you these things, but I never did because I, I didn't want to offend anybody. And now imagine that now in this snowflake culture we live in now where everybody's offended. Our, our, our culture now is like a perpetual umbrage machine. And no, I'm not talking about that crazy person from uh, Harry Potter. But she is aptly named. She was offended the whole, whole time in the movies. Maybe some of us are like Vashti. I don't know. Maybe some of us are like the royal council. We don't want to follow. We're like those eunuchs or the servants. Oh, yeah, I got the king's ear. I'm going to do whatever I can to get what's going for me. Life is short. I'm going to get what I can. Maybe you're like those servants. Oh, geez, I don't want to take this message to the king, to the queen, uh, to, the, to the harem. I don't want to take it because I know it's going to end bad for Vashti, but I got to do it because I got to put food on the table. I don't know. There's no morality here right now. We have, we've, God's not really here. I mean, there's no lecture, nothing. It's just, ugh. which of these characters is you? I suspect a lot of us are like Vashti. We would do something, but we don't dare. But then she did, and now she's gone. And that's why we didn't want to do it. There's a lot to go through here. Next week is going to be, dare I say, raunchy. Esther is, uh, well, we have to find a replacement. And this is not going to be a Cinderella where the guy walks around with a little shoe going, what foot fits the shoe? Um, no, this is going to be like a rated R movie or something. It's going to be really, really, we can't, we can't massage it. The book of Esther is pretty clear what's going on. God's going to use that? You betcha. God uses the ordinary events of life for his glory. And that's why you're here listening to my voice right now. That's why I'm here able to teach you right now. Because God used the events of my life to bring me to this season. Chapter 1 of the book of Esther. Thanks for letting me share.